You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, so cool. Uh, I see a couple of new people, perhaps, or maybe I'm just dumb. My name's Dave. I am the teaching pastor here at Revolution Church, and we're really glad you guys are here. Uh, What we're doing this evening is we are continuing our study of 1 John. Uh, We've been in there since the summer, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John, this projector is not reliable. Um, So the name of this series is Simple Truths, as I'm sure most of you are getting sick of me uh, saying. And we've, we've decided to call this series Simple Truths because most of us have heard the truths that John lays down in the letter, 1 John. Uh, but we always need reminded because as the people of God, we tend to be very slow to hear uh, the Word of God and even slower to respond to it, uh, sadly. So God has placed these basic truths on repeat all throughout His Word that we might finally hear them and heed them. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge something to you guys. Uh, I fully understand that this series has gotten repetitive at points, as I've talked about in the past. John writes in a circle, so he comes back to the same, it's like a spiral staircase, right? He keeps going back to the same ideas over and over and over again, and it's about to get repetitive again this evening. Uh, But here at Revolution Church, we believe in verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, exposition of Scripture. And what that means, basically, is that if the text were to repeat itself verbatim in two back-to-back passages, then we would preach the exact same concepts back-to-back, right? Because the Holy Spirit inspired men who penned the Scriptures to write exactly what they wrote, okay? So it's for a reason whenever the Bible repeats itself. If God says something once, it's worth hearing. If He says it twice, you better for certain listen, all right, so that means that God wants us to hear these same points and themes on repeat throughout this letter. All right, and here at Rev, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture is the only thing that the Holy Spirit has ordained to work alongside and nothing else. So it's what will change us into the people of God, the people that God has called us to be. It's scripture alone will do that. So this evening, we're going to be continuing on in John's theme of the assurance of salvation. All right, we've been there for quite a while. That's a huge theme of this entire book, as I've said many times. Um, and in our passage this evening, which is 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, uh, John is going to be finishing up his thoughts concerning the love test. He's going to return to that again in, in chapter 4, I believe. Um, and also concerning the thoughts of assurance being tied to the love test. He's going to bring all that together. Uh, tie that up. But John is also going to be bringing in a few concepts that we've covered so far in chapters 1 through 3, like abiding uh, in God. Uh, But before we go into the text, uh, I also want to let you know, like I said last week, uh, last week was a hard text. This week was another really hard text for me. I don't know if I'm just getting dumber or what's going on, but this this text is really hard for me. Um, There's some debate on verse 24 and how it should be understood. I see some of you are already looking at verse 24. We will get there. Uh, But there's some debate on how it should be understood. Um, Furthermore, uh, how these verses all fit together, verses 21 through 24, uh, how the ideas in them connect um, is just kind of hard to see, or at least it was for me. So I wanted to acknowledge that because for the sake of clarity this evening, uh, I am going to be looking at these verses out of order, right? We're going to be looking at verses 23 and 24 and then hopping up to verses 21 and 22. And I don't know why, I just felt like I needed to tell you guys that before we do it so that no one thinks I'm trying to pull a fast one on you, right? Because I know I'd be thinking that, hey man, the Holy Spirit inspired them in order. What's wrong with you, Dave? Right? I just wanted to make sure that no one was, could accuse me of that. I acknowledge that, but we're going to be taking them out of order. And if you want to fight me about that later, then we can go to the parking lot and talk about it. Um, thank you. Uh, so the thesis statement, if I could give a thesis statement for this sermon, and with one, I, I, again, I, me, I found this a difficult text. Uh, I got a statement for you. I'm going to read it a couple of times. So here's, the, here's what we're going towards. Here's what I want you guys to take away from this. If we believe on Jesus Christ and do as he commands, then we can objectively know that we belong to God and are in right relationship with him. And... When we are convinced of our standing with God, we will be confident before Him and have bold confidence in prayer. I'm going to read that one more time. If we believe on Jesus Christ and do as He commands, 
we can objectively know that we belong to God and are in right relationship with Him. And when we are convinced of our standing with God, we will be confident before Him and also have bold confidence in our prayers. So let's go ahead and get into this text. That's enough of an introduction. 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your holy scripture that has the power to change us because it is your word. God, I pray you do a work of sovereign grace this evening. If there are people here that don't know you, please draw them to your son by the work of your Holy Spirit. Cause them to abide in you and you promise to abide in them as well. Please woo them to you. But for the believers that are here, God, I pray you'd open our hearts to receive this text that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ that we might see the root and core of our faith, that we might see the bold confidence and assurance we have before you, and that might light a fire in us to go before you in prayer, in earnest prayer, expecting to receive the things that you promised to give us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start, like I said, in verse 23. I wanted to start there because this is the anchor of this whole passage. We're going to read it again here in a second. But... Know this, every promise, every blessing, every assurance that John writes about in this letter, in general, must start here in chapter 3, verse 23. If it does not, we will become legalists. Just laying that out there. If we don't start in verse 23, we're going to become legalists whenever we begin to talk about keeping the commandments of God. Furthermore, the truth found here is at the root, it is not at. It is the root and core of our faith in general. So again, all blessing from God comes from what we see in this verse 23. So let's read it. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Right? So this is his commandment. This is the commandment of God. Right, the, the him, the his, is a reference to God. This is his commandment, the one of central importance for us to obey. All right, if, if we get anything wrong, we can't afford to get this one wrong. This is the one of central importance to the faith. Because this is the sum total of all things that God has commanded. All of God's law points here, points to that truth. This is his command. Believe in his son and love one another. All of his command, all the ceremonial law you'll find in Leviticus, all the sacrificial system, all of the moral law, all of the judicial law you'll find in Israel in the Old Testament, all of it points to this one command. It's the sum of all things. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. This reminds us of Jesus' summary of the law, right, in Mark chapter 12. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we can see some parallel there, right? And again, I think John is just fine-tuning what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And the second command, right, love your neighbor as yourself, and to love one another. So we can see some serious parallels here, because both are the summary of all of God's law. So there's a lot of truth for us to consider here. So let's break down this two-part commandment. First thing, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's just tear that phrase apart. To believe. I'm not trying to insult any of your intelligence. I know most of us... I've heard this stuff before, but it bears repeating, and I like to repeat it, so let's do this. So though it has been implied, belief, belief in Christ has been implied throughout the letter. This is the first time in John's letter, I thought this was interesting, first time in John's letter that he has explicitly referred to belief in Christ. 
So as I'm sure most of us know in here, to believe is not mere intellectual assent. To believe is not mere intellectual assent. This is something that always needs to be stressed, especially in our culture today, where people say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus was a historical figure and so on and so forth. I think he was a pretty rad guy. He's all right. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a mere intellectual assent or acknowledging the historicity of Jesus. When John says that God commands us to believe, he's talking about trust. He's talking about trusting in Christ. He's talking about us throwing ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ for our salvation. Throwing ourselves entirely upon the promise of reconciliation to God through Christ. That's what it means to believe on Christ. It's much more than just accepting it in your head that that the gospel is true, but to throw yourself upon Christ. To lay hold of Christ by faith is what John's talking about. He's saying that God demands... Let's look at it that way, the commandment of God. These are the demands of God that we place all of our hope in Christ, that we look to Him alone, and that we trust Him in every way that He demands we trust Him. Second, He says we are to believe in Jesus' name. All right, so this isn't a reference to the literal words, Jesus Christ. All right, it's not what He's referring to here. This is, there's actually a rich, uh, rich tradition throughout the Scriptures uh, that when the Bible refers to the name of somebody, like the name of the Lord, you read that all the time. Like whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You read it in the, in the Old Testament a lot, in the New Testament as well. Whenever the Bible refers to the name of someone, it's referring to all of who that person is. All of who that person is. Their character, right? Their person and their work. What is this person like? The faithfulness of this person. And also, what has this person done. So he's calling us to trust in the name of Christ, which is to trust in his person and work. So considering the person of Christ, who is Christ? John is saying that God demands us to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. This is the command of God, to believe that Jesus Christ is the creator. As John talks about in his gospel in the first chapter, nothing was created except through him, Christ, the the word. That he is the sustainer, as Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1, that in him all things hold together. That Christ is the eternal one. That when there was nothing, there was Christ. He is the one through whom all things came into being. That he is the Messiah. That he is the chosen of God to come and atone for the sins of the elect of God. That he is the Christ, the anointed one, the divine son of God the pre-existent word, the all-wise one, the omnipotent. Furthermore, to get a little bit more specific that he is, this is a big theme for John, that Christ is truly God and truly man. And being the God-man, that Christ is our fit representative before God. Just like Adam was in the Garden of Eden, that Adam was the representative for all mankind, and through his transgression, we all came into sin, that Christ is a much better representative for us, and that through Christ, we receive reconciliation with God, have a better federal head standing before God in our place. We must believe these things about the person of Christ, but we also must believe in the work of Christ. God demands that we believe that Christ has done what was necessary to reconcile sinners to God. I know we have some unbelievers in the room. This is what God demands, that we believe that Jesus Christ lived for his people. It's something that goes neglected sometimes in our thoughts. His active obedience, that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law of God that sinful men and women like you and I cannot keep. And God says only the righteous can be with him in heaven. Only the righteous don't undergo his wrath. Christ keeps the law for us in his life on earth. We must believe that he did that for his people, his active obedience. We also must believe that Jesus Christ died for his people, his passive obedience, his passion. That Christ on the cross bled and died, suffering the very wrath of God in our room instead, in order to take our sin from us, satisfy God's wrath, and then expiate it, take it away from us, that we might be reconciled to God. But not only that, God demands that we believe that Christ was raised from the dead for his people, for our surety, 
for our bold confidence that God accepts the sacrifice of Christ, the life and death of Christ on behalf of His people. The resurrection is the proof of that. Furthermore, we trust in that, that we would be raised from the dead too, that Christ is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn from the dead. That we too would be raised to life. We must believe in His person and His work. I want to take a second to say this. He says we must believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is singular. So please hear me on this. That is singular. This is specific. This is a specific Jesus. This is the Christ of Scripture. As He has revealed Himself to us. As He really is. We are not permitted, let alone commanded, to believe in an idol Jesus that we have created in our own minds. We are not permitted by God to believe in an idolatrous Christ that our culture has created for us. A false Christ. To paraphrase John Calvin, we are to believe in Jesus Christ as He is set forth in the Gospel and in no other way. You take Christ as He is, you don't take Him at all. His Son, Jesus Christ. This Christ that is both kind toward the repentant and severe toward the reprobate sinner. The Christ who is the judge of all men and the Savior of His people. The Christ who is meek and terrifying. Who made Himself low but is sovereign and transcendent far above all of His creation. There is no other Jesus. That is Christ. There is no other Jesus that saves So I just wanted to drive that home because I know that there's a lot of different kinds of Jesuses in our culture. There's only one Christ that saves. God says we must trust His Son, not our version of what we wish His Son was, but His Son. And also, John says we are to love one another. We are to love one another. This is interesting. He says the command, this is His commandment, singular. But then He says we are to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. This tells us that this one commandment from God actually has two parts, but is still, nevertheless, one command. It's kind of trippy. It's like matrixy a little bit for me. So the parts, believe in Jesus and love one another, are inseparable. Right? They are eternally linked together because Christ is the embodiment of of love. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in this, but John's love test that we've been looking at since... Uh, verse 10 in this chapter, we've been looking at it for the last month or so. That's what's in view is the love test, right? Remember chapter 3, verse 16, and by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The love test is for certain in view here. So these two parts cannot be divided because Christ is the embodiment of love. He loves the brothers, so we love the brothers as well. Furthermore, these two parts of this one command are inextricably linked together because true belief of necessity must have ethical implications. What I'm saying is true belief changes how we live. And please hear me on this. A lot of us are great with with studying theology, but please don't become cold, dead Calvinists. Please don't become that. Don't study the Reformed tradition just for the sake of being Reformed. Please. Don't read the Word just to check that off your list. Scripture must change how we live. True belief must change how we live. It must change how we perceive reality. It must change how we order our desires. It must change what we love and what we hate. That's what true belief does. And if it doesn't, then it's not real. I'm not saying it's false, but it's not real for you if it doesn't change, if it doesn't have ethical implications on your life. That's why belief in Christ and loving one another are bound together as one command. So without keeping the second part of this command, there is no way we are keeping the first. Please hear me on that. As far as John is concerned, he is very black and white. It is not possible for you to believe in the name of Jesus Christ and not love one another. Absolutely impossible. Completely inconsistent. 
So let me take a minute and be pastoral and not be so general here. Let me implore you to this. We spent three weeks talking about it. Love one another. Look around you, especially if you're a member here. Love one another. Do kindness to one another. Forgive one another. Do good to one another. And I take a minute to say that because I know by talking to some of you and by your own admission, a few of you, that some of you here in this room are walking in bitterness, unforgiveness, and division with other believers. You've told me. So on behalf of Christ and on the ground of this verse, let me exhort you to something. Forgive one another. For God's sake, for His sake, love the brothers. Love your fellow Christian. Not because they're lovely, but because He loves them. Not because they're easy to forgive, but because God is worth obeying. Forgive them. Love them. Back into the text. So we see the second part of this command, obviously, is to love one another. That is the immediate context. Again, the love test is still on John's mind. If we don't love the brothers, we're not saved. That's evidence of actually being a converted person is that you love your fellow Christians. But I think, like we talked about this last week, we did this last week, I'm going to do it again. Um, I think we can see a more broad underlying principle here. That's this. It's the idea of doing whatever Jesus commands. Whatever he commands. So here's how I see that. All right, so follow me on this. This could get a tad bit convoluted. I've been afraid of this, but we're going to do it anyway. All right, so in verse 23, the last part says, as he has commanded us. So love one another. Why? As he has commanded you. He's saying, do what Christ has commanded. Do what he says. And also in verse 24a, the first part of it, says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. All right, so keep in mind, verse 23 was singular. This is the commandment of God. This is his commandment. And verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments, plural. This tells us that this one big command in verse 23 will have a ton of derivative commandments. It'll have a ton of them. There are many implications in that one big commandment to believe on Christ and love one another. So looking at that broader concept that there's going to be many derivative things off of those two broad categories, we see that the command of God is this, that we believe in Jesus Christ and do what He says. That we repent of our sins, agreeing with God that we're a sinner, that we deserve His righteous wrath, because we have indeed transgressed the law of God, let alone we've been born sinners. We've been hostile to God, we've rebelled against God, that we repent, we turn from that, we turn to Christ, trust in His person and work, and then begin to follow Him. That we begin to be a disciple of Jesus. This is the sum total of the Christian message. I know this is very basic, but this always bears repeating. Sometimes we can get lost in a lot of the other things, and I love doctrine, I love theology, but this is the core, this is the sum total of everything we believe. Because this is the command of God. That we believe on Christ and do what Christ says. So again, I always want to make a note here. We believe in salvation or justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Absolutely. It's a sovereign work of God. No no obedience or works on our behalf in order to merit our justification. But as you've heard me say a million times, obedience to the Lord Jesus is always the fruit of faith. It does not factor into your right standing with God, but it is always the fruit of right standing with God. So John isn't calling us to utter perfection whenever we're to trust Christ and do what he commands. But I would say this, I'm stealing this from Matt Chandler because I like him, that we stumble forward in our faith. I like that. That's what we're called to do. Trust Christ and begin to stumble forward in your faith. Most of us are not going to be sprinting. Most of us won't be able to walk most of the time, but inch by inch, day by day, we keep pursuing Christ. We stumble over our sin, but we keep going on in repentance and faith. That's what a saved person does. We continue to trust Christ and continue to obey the law of Christ. And if we're not doing that, we're not saved. 
Because that is the command of God, that we do that. That we, begin to, that we keep stumbling forward, trusting Christ. But Don, John then goes on to tell us the result of obeying this command of God. Verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. All right, so this is the result of obeying that command in verse 23, that we abide in God and God abides in us. Now, if you're like me and you hear the word abide, you begin to uh, immediately think, I don't know what that means. It sounds like Christianese, right? You know that language you speak at church that no one ever uses outside of church, Christianese. Uh, Here's what it means to abide. We've talked about it before. Abide means to live in, to continue in, to remain in, to walk with, to know truly, to be in a real relationship with. That's what it means to abide. It says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him. And God in that person as well. So this idea of abiding, please hear me on this. Abiding is not a mystical experience. Right? I used to kind of think that. Like, maybe some of these like Eastern mystics, maybe they're getting this thing abide right. No, they're not. Uh, don't go down that road. That's just a bunch of trash. Um, But abiding is truly knowing God. It's walking with Him, being reconciled to Him. If I could stress anything about this idea of abiding, it would be this. That abiding in God and He in you is having a true, deep, right relationship with God where you know Him as Father. That's what it is to abide in God and to have God abiding in you. A true, real, deep relationship where you know this is my Father. He loves me. He's proven His love for me and I love Him. A real relationship. Furthermore, obedience does not nullify the reality of a true relationship. Think about parents and their children. They have a real relationship and yet the child owes the parents obedience. It doesn't make it any less of a real relationship. And I know in America it's kind of weird for us. If we think we obey someone and they have authority over us, that that can't be a real relationship because you have to be equals. That's stupid. Okay, we can be in a real relationship with God and yet submit to Him in obedience. But to have this mutual abiding is, in a very real sense, salvation. To have this abiding is essentially to be saved. John uses this doctrine of abiding, if you're familiar with uh, the Apostle Paul's doctrine of union with Christ, that we've been united with Christ by faith, that whatever is Christ's is now ours, kind of like a, a, a marriage of sorts. That's how John uses abiding, if that helps clear, clarify this up a little bit. It's, it's, you can use it synonymously with salvation. You know, Jesus Christ actually speaks of the necessity of abiding in John chapter 15. John, I would argue, is drawing from the words of Christ in this passage. Chapter 15, verses 4 through 6 of John's gospel says, This is Christ. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So we see here that abiding results in bearing fruit for God. Abiding results in obedience. But not abiding ends in hell for the unbeliever. They're worthless branches. They're gathered up, thrown into the fire. That's an allusion to hell. So in light of the words of Christ, we must be sure that we abide. This is an incredibly important thing. Again, synonymous with salvation. But verse 24 tells us how we can know. It says, whoever keeps his commandments abides. Whoever keeps his commandments abides. And again, that points us back to verse 23. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and do what he says. Whoever believes in and follows Christ abides. This is a beautiful thought. We can objectively know that we abide if we keep verse 23. If we keep that command. We can objectively know. It means know really and truly. This is not a subjective feeling. Your assurance of salvation is not a subjective thing. It's not an emotional thing. This is true regardless of how you feel. If we trust in in Christ and follow Him in faith, then we abide. That's what he says. John drives this home in in verse 24b, in the the end of it. He says, By this 
we know that He abides in us. That this is a reference for, referencing back to whoever keeps the commandment. So again, this is objective assurance. This is objective assurance. Much better, I might add, than the assurance from feeling. Much better. Because feelings aren't much assurance at all. We can be self-deceiving, can't we? Is it Jeremiah 17, 9? How deceitful is the heart of man? It's more deceitful than anything else. I'm paraphrasing heavily. Don't quote me on that. It's desperately sick and wicked. That's our heart. That's our emotions. We can be self-deceiving, but God promises objective assurance if we're keeping the command in verse 23. I love it. He promises that assurance absolutely. With no qualifiers, no caveats, whoever keeps his commandments abides. That's beautiful. Objective truth for us. Objective assurance for us. But I think the last bit, I'm really dividing these verses up. 24C, right, the very end. I think it provides us the most assurance, in my opinion. It says, by this we know that he abides in us. By the, by the Spirit whom He has given to us. The Holy Spirit given to us. That's comforting. But hear me on this. Some people think that that refers to the subjective feeling of assurance that the Holy Spirit gives, right? Like Romans 8. His Spirit uh, affirms to our spirit that we are the sons of God. Right? Some people think that that's what John's alluding to. But that's subjective. That's a feeling. I think that would defeat John's whole point in this passage of objective assurance. Okay? So I think that the sense of this verse, the whole thing, verse 24, is this. By keeping God's command to believe in and follow Jesus, we know that God abides in us. Because this is by way of the Spirit whom He has given to us. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. John is pointing us, please hear this, this is huge. This is why we can have objective assurance from this. John is pointing us to the fact that the unregenerate man... The natural man, the person that were born, cannot do what verse 23 demands. The natural man cannot believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and keep his commandments. He absolutely cannot do that. The unregenerate cannot do that. Because man is naturally opposed to God. Our mind is hostile to God. Romans chapter 8 tells us that. We cannot do what pleases God, and we will not do what pleases God, apart from divine intervention. We are inherently hostile to God apart from divine grace. Therefore, if you keep verse 23, you know that God has given you His Holy Spirit. Because that's something that you can't do, apart from God causing you to be born again. You believe because God caused you to be born again. And that's something that only happens to the elect of God. That's something that only happens to God's children. Again, chapter 3, verse 10. By this we know who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. We're still in that thought. So because this is a work of the Holy Spirit that you've believed on Christ and follow Him, you know you belong to God. So to sum up verses 23 and 24, if you have believed on Christ and follow Him, you have total assurance that you abide in God and that God abides in you because this is a work of divine grace in you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's assurance. If you can see that, if you're trusting in Christ and stumbling forward in faith, you have objective assurance because you can't do that by yourself. You can't believe in Christ by yourself. Your will is broken and bound to sin apart from the divine work of the Holy Spirit making your will choose Christ. That's how you know if you've trusted Christ, you belong to God, that He abides in you. Now in light of that, let's kick back up to verses 21 and 22. Here John tells us the benefits and blessings of having such assurance that is rooted in the work of the Holy Spirit, drawing us to abide in God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is an incredibly Trinitarian passage. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I love that. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Beloved, if we have assurance that we abide in God and God in us, then we have confidence before Him. This is beautiful. This is sweet. 
Right? This is a general confidence. Okay? We know our confidence is that when we stand before the judgment throne of God, we will not be put to shame. Chapter 2 says we will not shrink back away from the Lord Jesus at His coming. This confidence before God is that when Christ returns or when we die, we know that we will not shrink back in fear of condemnation because He abides in us and we abide in Him. We're His children. He's brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We trust His Son. We keep His commandments. We will not shrink back in fear of condemnation from God. We have confidence before Him. So hear me on this. I know some of us struggle with assurance or struggle with knowing the love of God. Hear me. If you are keeping the commandment in verse 23, trusting Christ and following Him, I want you to know something. God's wrath is coming upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But it is not coming for you. It is not coming for you. You have been reconciled to God by the person and work of Jesus Christ in whom you have believed. God has no wrath for you. You abide in one another. You have confidence before Him. Take it. Do not live in fear. Take it. But what's interesting is that this holy confidence before the judgment throne of God isn't the end. Right? It's a means to something else. And John, to me, takes a hard left and he goes somewhere that most of us would not see coming. So this assurance leads us into verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So this confident assurance is meant to push us to prayer. I did not see that coming. Thank God we preach the text and not what we want to do. I right? did not see that coming at all. It's meant to push us to prayer. So consider this. Because of the work of the Spirit drawing you to Christ, God is now your Father. Do you really know that? He's your Father. Are you really convinced of that? That He walks with you and you walk with Him. That He is in you and that you are in Him. That He is your Father. You are His child. Are you convinced of that truth? Because through Jesus Christ, you are a child of God and therefore have the ear of Almighty God Himself. Just like a child has the ear of any parent in this room, you have the ear of God. It's amazing. Are you convinced of that? Through the work of divine grace, you have become a child of God. He abides in you and you in Him. Why would you not go to Him in prayer? Why would you not? He will not be deaf to the cries of His children. He actually implores us to go boldly before His throne and to lay our requests before Him. He actually desires them. We're told to cast all of our anxieties and worries upon Him. So I ask you this. Do you struggle in prayer? That's a fun question. I know the answer for most of us. Do you struggle to pray? Do you struggle believing that God hears you in prayer? Those kinds of things. Do you struggle with prayer in general? Because if you do, it's probably because you're not convinced that God has placed you in a real, true relationship with Himself. probably it. You're probably not convinced of the mutual abiding going on. If you've trusted in Christ, you're probably not convinced of that and that's why you struggle in prayer. Probably. not saying there can't be other reason. You probably view him as indifferent and distant. But John is, is telling us that since God abides in us and we in him, that we should go to him in prayer with, with confidence that we will be heard. That's what he's saying. Confidence that we will have a hearing before God in our prayers. Now, I need to clarify some things in this verse, as I'm sure some of you are asking questions as you read that. I want to clarify some things. First is this, that phrase, 
It says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So hear me on this. John is not, is not saying that our obedience to God obligates Him to do whatever we say. That is not what he is saying. No, this phrase is directly connected to verse 23. Coming to Christ by faith. Believing in the name of His Son. That's the commandment. Because we keep His commandment and do what pleases Him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son. So God promises to hear and answer us because we come to Him through Christ. So hear me on this. It is not on our merit of obedience that God hears us when we pray and answers our prayers. But rather it is on the merit of Christ that God hears us. We cannot twist His arm into doing what we want. It's on the merit of Christ that God hears us, which furthermore is a much, much better ground for confidence in our prayers than we could ever give by our own obedience. Much rather have it grounded in who Christ is than the gutter trash that I am. Second, we need to clarify this. Whatever we ask, we receive. I read that on Monday when I was studying and just went, oh no. We've got to address this. So this is not John telling us to name it and claim it, brother. Right? John is not turning on TBN and watching Benny Hinn and, and Joyce Meyer and all those heretics. He's not saying that if you ask God for a nice car and a mansion and a million dollars that he'll give it to you because you're a Christian. Although, how sick would that be? I wouldn't work ever. Um, so we have to look at all of the scriptures when we come across a verse like this. All right? We believe in what, we, what the Reformed tradition calls the analogy of faith, which means we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, so we look for clarification and qualifiers throughout the Bible, and then we look at it all together and get our doctrine from it. So John actually expounds on this thought in the same letter. Chapter 5, just a couple chapters later. Chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So John even doesn't, doesn't even leave us any wiggle room like in his own book, right? According to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this is always what we have to bear in mind. God does not do things that are against his will. He is sovereign. He always does his will, always. And his will is always accomplished, always. He will not be contradicted. In fact, he cannot be contradicted because he ordains everything. So in accordance with his will. But James... Let's kick to another letter. James, Jesus' half-brother, also has something to say about asking and receiving in James chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. So this is an interesting one. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Right? So right there. You don't have because you're not asking God for the things that you want. But you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. So he's saying you're asking for fleshly things. You're asking for carnal things. For worldly things. You ask with wrong motives. You ask wrongly. To spend on your own passions. You ask for selfish things that would benefit you and only you. So you ask and do not receive because of that. Then he goes on and says, you adulterous people. That's harsh. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what's he saying? He says, one, you don't have what you, what you want because you don't ask. Two, the things you do ask for don't honor God. They're worldly things that you're asking for. They're things that satisfy what the flesh wants. Which makes us imply that James is implicitly telling them to ask for spiritual good from God. All right, so keep that in mind, spiritually good things. So what is it that we can expect from God then? I've got a couple more passages. I think that the Lord Jesus clears some things up for us. What can we expect from God? Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So what can we expect from God? God promises to give good things to those who ask. 
He promises to be a good father and to do good for his children. And he alone knows what is truly good for us. Again, I'm stealing something else from Matt Chandler. It is an evil father who always gives his children what they want. Parents, if you gave your kids everything they asked for, they would probably be dead. God will not give us what will spiritually destroy us. But he will give us good things. Ultimately, though, I think that it's the Lord's Prayer uh, that shows us how to pray, obviously. And what we can expect God to do for us and what we can pray expecting to receive. So let's do it. You always know this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God, you are holy. I want your kingdom to come. Your agenda to be promoted. I want your will to be done here. I want to be an agent of that will. Give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need today. Sustain me today. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lord, forgive me for the times that I have sinned against you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Keep me holy. Help me to be sanctified, to be like Christ. Keep me away from sin and Satan. Deliver my soul. Sanctify me. Make everything subservient to my salvation. This teaches us how to pray because Jesus' entire prayer here is centered on God's will and God being glorified. So putting all this together, I think John is telling us that whenever we pray for spiritual blessing, that the will of God be done, that God's agenda be promoted, that we be preserved, saved, and made holy like our Heavenly Father, that God is at the ready and will gladly grant those requests to us. That's what John's aiming at. Those are the good things that we can confidently and boldly expect to receive from God. Because those are the kinds of prayers His Son, Jesus Christ, offered. And Christ is not denied. Now I have four things that I want us to consider by way of application. And the first is this. Search your heart. Have you kept the commandment in verse 23? Have you believed in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ? And are you following Him? If you haven't, I can't say it in any stronger term. I, I mean this. You are going to go to hell. The wrath of God abides on you. You will be judged for everything that you've done. You have sinned against God. If you have not turned to Christ and you are not following Christ, there is no hope for you. God is demanding you to repent and trust His Son. There is your hope. There is your salvation. There is your righteousness. It's Christ. Look to Him. Looking is no work. Look to Christ. Trust Christ. Look up to Him. Put your faith in Him. But if you have kept that command, I want you to rest assured that God has done a work in you and that you do belong to Him. Take the confidence that is yours to have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two, see the simplicity of God's command in verse 23 and be encouraged by it. Trust Christ. Follow Christ. Now that's not an easy command. Do what Christ says. It's not easy, but it is very simple. All right, it's not impossible for us to understand what God would have of us. All right, so again, we ask ourselves the question, how, how might the Lord, or what, what, what has the Lord Jesus commanded me to do in this situation? How might I trust him in this season of my life? I'm not saying it's easy, but it is simple. And the simplicity of the command should encourage us to pursue obedience to the command. Three, and this is a flyby point. I just couldn't let this go. Verse 22 says, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Christian, we don't talk about this enough. I'm guilty of this, chief of sinners. You can actually please God. Yeah. You can actually do it. I had a talk with Keely about this last week. Sometimes we focus so much on the fact that we're wretches and we focus so much on our sinfulness and how there's no good in us that we fly over parts like this. You can do what pleases God. 
Now, apart from grace in your natural state, you could not please Him. But you've been born again. The Spirit of God has been given to you so you can actually do what pleases Him. Furthermore, your attempts to obey, though they're not perfect, your attempts to obey God are bathed in the blood of Christ and rendered acceptable to Him. Beautiful. God delights in you. And you can please Him through faith in Christ. I want that to encourage you to push on in obedience to Christ. And then lastly, the obvious one. Pray. Pray. If, if there's no such thing as a prayerless Christian. Pray. And pray with expectation that you will be heard. Go to your Father and know that God will always ultimately do good for you. That you have His ear that you are a child of God, that He is your Father, that He will do good for you, that He loves you, that He cares for you. And He will always do His will. And this is the will of God. Your eternal good. Go to Him with confidence. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for being good to us. The, something that we, we, we glance over too much is the, the ridiculous privilege that we have to call you Father. Abba, Father. There's a closeness there. God, I pray that your people would see that and that they would search you out in prayer. That they would know that you're going to do good for them so that they would lay their cares and anxieties on you, knowing that they have your ear through your Son. Let us be a people that are confident before you and that that confidence would lead us to appeal to you and to petition you. God, I pray you grant us assurance through your word. And if there are people here who are struggling uh, with the assurance of salvation, God, that you put them at peace with this passage. Let them objectively know that they belong to you because of the fruit in their life wrought by your Holy Spirit. And God, for the unbelievers that are here, draw them to your Son. Let them see the attractiveness of the gospel. Give them a great desire to know the forgiveness of sins, to know peace with you, to know you as Father, to know Christ as Lord. And God, we thank you so much for the blessings that you give us in Christ our Lord. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.